You're listening to a Dharma talk from Sunday Morning Zen, a program of the Zen Life and Meditation Center of Chicago. And I was also thinking of the love and respect of both human and animal mothers. You know, maybe, I don't know if it's enough spring in your area, but there's, you know, beginning to be mothers feeding their baby birds. And it's just this complete essential crash course in putting the needs of others first. You know, that's what we do. Um, and there are literal mothers. I had a, a wonderful conglomerate of a family of adopted kids and foster kids and birth kids and stuff. So I raised five children that way and have 11 grandchildren. So I am in it. <laughs> I am in that, that flow. Um, and then, you know, just that spirit and then the way we all tend to each other as is obvious in your sangha you know we we have this this um grandmotherly mind and this motherly spirit and then we extend it it's like we open that circle of care so i feel i feel really grateful to you for showing up on this day and um for, for being able to actually fold that into the story that yep. I'm bringing yep. in, because it's a story of a grandmother, and it's a story of grandmother's mind, Robaishin, and it's a story of the Bodhisattva attitude. So I'm hoping we can really sink in and, and receive this story in all those ways. I, it's kind of a long thing to read. Um, but I am so moved by this story that I can't take little pieces out. So I'm hoping when we get to that part that you can just kind of sit back as you would if your grandmother were reading you a story and really let it in. It's a beautiful teaching. So just to say a thing or two about grandmother's mind, this is um, our, our Zen master, Ehe Dogen. And he taught Robaishin and respected it and said this to his monks at one point. He said, you can understand all of Buddhism, but you cannot go beyond your abilities and your intelligence unless you have Robaishin, grandmother mind, the mind of great compassion. This compassion must help all of humanity. You should not think only of yourself. So we take this spirit and we extend it. And just one short comment about um, parents and grandparents, because uh, having been both, I was reading recently something in Lion's Roar by Susan Moon. I don't know if you know her. She's a co-author of The Hidden Lamp, stories of Zen women. And she says this, she says, um, parents have to have a different kind of mind than grandparents, and this is so true. She says, parents have to attend to the nuts and bolts of their children's needs, feeding them, sheltering them, keeping them warm. They have to protect them from cars, from sugar, from kidnapping. <laughs> parents take care of the foreground. 
but grandmothers, both literal and metaphorical, can pay attention to the background, to the water and the air. We can tell the baby stories about the stars. So the story I'm gonna read today um, is about a grandmother and her grandmother's heart and her bodhisattva attitude. And this particular grandmother went through an incredible um, journey of really from an unimaginable grief to great open-heartedness and compassionate action. And so, you know, this is our wish and our vow. And when I hear this story and how she made that journey, um, I think I, every time I, I hear it, I know I have a lot to learn from it. And it's a story from a book called Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. I know some of you will know this book and maybe others not, but Brian Stevenson is a really uh, wonderful African-American lawyer, social justice activist, and his work really is with um, helping the poor and the incarcerated he, he's worked for decades with uh, people on death row and particularly uh, young people who are sentenced to life in prison before they have even thought about grow, what it is to grow up. So that's Brian Stevenson, but this is not a story about him. Something that I love about this story is it's a story of a woman whose name is left unsaid. You know, and like so many of our Zen stories, uh, we have these wonderful Buddhist women ancestors. Um, so it's not a Zen story, but it's truly a Bodhisattva story. And just a little context, this is the end of this book called Just Mercy, where Brian Stevenson works about, writes about his work. And this incident happened um, in a courtroom in New Orleans after he's won freedom for these two men who have been incarcerated for decades. And you know, it's this culmination of so many years of work and so many years of suffering of these men. And so that's, that's the context of this, this story. And he comes out and he's waiting for some final paperwork um, to be approved, to clear the way for the release of Mr. Caston and Mr. Carter. So the story goes like this. An older black woman sat on the marble steps in the massive courthouse hallway. She looked tired and wore what my sister and I used to call a church meeting hat. She had smooth, dark skin, and I recognized her as someone who had been in the courtroom when Mr. Carter was resentenced. In fact, I thought I'd seen her each time I'd come to the courthouse in New Orleans. I assumed that she was related or connected to one of the clients, although I didn't remember the other family members ever mentioning her. I must have been staring because she saw me looking and waved at me, gesturing for me to come to her. 
When I walked over to her, she smiled at me. I'm tired and I'm not going to get up. So you are gonna have to lean over for me to give you a hug. She had a sweet voice that crackled. I smiled back at her. Well, yes, ma'am, I love hugs, thank you. She wrapped her arms around my neck. Sit, sit, I wanna talk to you, she said. I sat down beside her on the steps. I've seen you here several times. Are you related to Mr. Karsten or Mr. Carter? I asked. No, no, I'm not related to nobody here. Not that I know of anyway. She had a kind smile and she looked at me intensely. I just come here to help people. This is a place full of pain. So people need plenty of help around here. Well, that's really kind of you. No, it's what I'm supposed to do, so I do it. She looked away before locking eyes with me again. My 16-year-old grandson was murdered 15 years ago. And I love that boy more than life itself. I wasn't expecting that response and I was instantly sobered. The woman grabbed my hand. I grieved and grieved and grieved. I asked the Lord why he let someone take my child like that. He was killed by some other boys. I came to this courtroom for the first time for their trials and sat in there and cried every day for nearly two weeks. None of it made any sense. Those boys were found guilty for killing my grandson and the judge sent them away to prison forever. I thought it would make me feel better, but it actually made me feel worse. She continued, I sat in the courtroom after they were sentenced and just cried and cried. A lady came over to me and gave me a hug and let me lean on her. She asked me if the boys who got sentenced were my children and I told her no. I told her the boy they killed was my child. She hesitated. I think she sat with me for almost two hours. For well over an hour, we didn't either of us say a word. It felt good to finally have someone to lean on at that trial. And I've never forgotten that woman. I don't know who she was, but she made a difference. I'm so sorry about your grandson, I murmured. It was all I could think of to say. Well, you never fully recover, but you carry on. You carry on. I didn't know what to do with myself after those trials, so about a year later, I started coming down here. I don't really know why. I guess I just felt like maybe I could be someone, you know, that somebody hurting could lean on. She looped her arm with mine. I smiled at her. That's really wonderful. It has been wonderful. What's your name again? It's Brian. It has been wonderful, Brian. When I first came, I'd look for people who had lost someone to murder or some violent crime. 
then it got to the point where some of the ones grieving the most were the ones whose children or parents were on trial. So I just started letting anybody lean on me who needed it. All these young children being sent to prison forever, all this grief and violence, those judges throwing people away like they're not even human, people shooting each other, hurting each other like they don't care. I don't know. It's a lot of pain. I decided that I was supposed to be here to catch some of the stones people cast at each other. So this is where the stone catcher comes in. And um, there's a, a brief remembering by um, Brian of a time when he recalled that story at a church meeting. And he says this, at the church meeting, I spoke mostly about Walter's case, but I also reminded people that when the woman accused of adultery was brought to Jesus, she told the accusers who wanted to stone her to death, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. The woman's accusers retreated and Jesus forgave her and urged her to sin no more. And then Brian says, but today our self-righteousness, our fear, our anger have caused even the Christians to hurl stones at the people who fall down. Even when we know we should forgive or show compassion. So the story of our stone catcher ends like this. She says to Brian, I heard you in that courtroom today. I've seen you here a couple of times. I know you're a stone catcher too. He says, I laughed. Well, I guess I tried to be. She took my hands and rubbed my palms. Well, it hurts to catch them stones people throw. She kept stroking my hands and I couldn't think of anything to say. I felt unusually comforted by this woman. I had five hours to drive back to Montgomery once I got things settled in court and I needed to keep moving, but it felt nice sitting there with the woman now earnestly massaging my palms in a way that was so sweet, even though it seemed strange too. Are you trying to make me cry, I asked. I tried to smile. She put her arm around me and smiled back. No, you did good today. I was so happy when that judge said that man was going home. It gave me goosebumps. 50 years in prison. He can't even see no more. No, I was grateful to God when I heard that. You don't have anything to cry about. I'm just going to let you lean on me a bit because I know a few things. Because I know a few things about stone catching. I really can't uh, read the story without being so moved. Yeah. So, um, what I'd like to examine together is um, we have our vows, you know, we so want to serve 
And there's so much individual and collecting suffering, especially now. And we live in a culture that seems all too ready to find fault and blame and point fingers. You know, we feel and we want to express our outrage. We want to jump to a verdict. And this woman did something different with her suffering and her pain. And I'm sure her rage. And so by really tracing her story, I think we can learn something maybe about what to do with our suffering and our anger. Um, and this is the bodhisattva activity, not turning away from suffering of the world. When I was um, thinking about this story and like, welcoming, being with, coming alongside the suffering. I thought of our, um, one of the liturgies that we do at Upaya, which is the gate of sweet nectar or the gate of sweet dew. And there's a beautiful song that starts this, this ceremony where we say, calling all you hungry spirits everywhere through endless time calling all you hungry hearts, all the lost and left behind, gather round and share this meal. Your joy and sorrow, I make it mine. So our grandmother in this story, coming to the courthouse to me is this, your joy and sorrow, I make it mine. There's a lot of things that we listen to, and this story, especially for me, is really inspiring. But what I ask myself and what I want to ask us as a Sangha and uh, all of us really is, how can we be more than just inspired? And what will it take for us to make this journey? You know, the self-examination that it takes looking at where do I stop? Where do I, you know, there's always my good intention, but then there's where I stop and turn away, you know? So I keep, we keep cultivating our patience and our generosity and our courage. What hungry spirits are we not willing to invite into our lives just yet? And that's where we work. So, looking at our stone catcher bodhisattva you know the first thing she did is grieve you know she she opened her heart to her own suffering she says i grieved and grieved and grieved she came to the courtroom and cried every day and then eventually we see how she let that connect her to others she opened that grief towards others in the way we do when we say, you know, just like me, you're suffering. And, you know, at first she thought that that guilty verdict for the boys who shot and killed her grandson would make her feel better. But she said, actually, 
made me feel worse, made me feel worse. So she connected to the suffering of all those others, suffering from our violent world, our racism, and connected to them as human beings and not, you know, victims and perpetrators. So I think that was the first step. And then somehow without knowing why, and I really appreciate this part of the story, um, she just started showing up at the courthouse. She said, I didn't know what to do with myself after those trials. So about a year later, I just started coming down here. I don't really know why. I guess I just felt like maybe I could be someone that somebody could lean on. And I don't know about you, but I imagine that most of us here have felt such a sense at times of the immensity of our situation in so many ways. And it's very easy uh, for me at least to feel, to not know what to do, you know, to get caught up in that wave of overwhelm. And so, um, you know, even not being sure what to do, she just started showing up and being someone that others could lean on. And I feel like in a way she was uh, giving the gift of fearlessness to those who leaned on her. And then also to all of us sitting here, listening to this story, She's giving us the gift of fearlessness to just step out, you know, to ask maybe what our ingredients are and look at what's right here before us so that we can enact our vow and also look at gets, what gets in the way for us of showing up. And I'd like to bring in just briefly, not as a whole teaching, but um, Dogen's uh, fascicle on the four ways that bodhisattvas embrace living beings. And I learned something about this that I didn't, hadn't known previously, which is that this teaching dates all the way back to the Pali Canon, actually, of these four beneficial actions. And in the Sangha Sutta, it says, calls them the four grounds for the bonds of fellowship giving, kind words, beneficial action, and then identity action it calls consistency in the face of events, in line with what's appropriate in each case. These bonds of fellowship function in the world like the linchpin in a moving cart. And, um, you know, giving, kind feet, speech, beneficial action are right in the, at the center of this story of how our grandmother was showing up. But another thing that Dogen says um, in this fascicle, I think is super important too, because um, as well as teaching about the four beneficial actions, he questions the view that bodhisattva activity primarily benefits others. And I, this rings so true to me. If we think about what we receive through our beneficial action, 
Dogen says, foolish people think that if they help others first, their own benefit will be lost. But this is not so. Beneficial action is an act of oneness, benefiting self and others together. So I think in our stone catching story that our grandmother benefited so deeply for her action, that was her healing actually, her transforming her own suffering and ang anger. And I would say actually that she got her life back through that beneficial action. So, you know, one of the things to keep as a question is what can guide us and inspire us and hold us steady in this journey of transforming suffering and anger into acts of tenderness, kindness. Um, so we work, you know, this, we work with the energy of anger and lashing out. So that we can transform it into the kind of passion and fierceness actually that she brought, but of catching stones rather than throwing them. And this takes cultivating a mind of not knowing and bearing witness. So when she shows up to the courthouse, she's bearing witness, um, but not as a spectator or bystander, rather, you know, taking responsibility, knowing that we're implicated, that it's not happening out there, that we need to take it personally as she did. The people, the judges throwing people away, the people shooting each other, like they don't care, all that pain to take it personally. And when we do that, you know, what we gain is empathy, compassion. And we also feel a breaking down in our sense of separation between ourselves and others. I think one important thing to really remember and practice within this, if we, you know, as we turn towards suffering rather than guarding ourselves from it, um, I think of catching stones, right? Catching stones. And then I, I think of Avalokiteshvara with <clears throat> her many hands. But actually an important piece of this is to not catch stones and then put them in our backpack. To not catch stones and then carry them, like carry the weight of the world around. There's, there's this, this nimbleness that we see in some of our modern day bodhisattvas, like I think many of you uh, have at least heard stories, if not witnessed the Dalai Lama's Fierce heartbreak, and the next moment, joy. You know, that ability to completely meet what's there, but not, not carry it around, um, not be weighed down by it. Roshi uh, Enkyo from the village Zendo 
has a an article. I think it's in Lion's Roar. I might be wrong, but that you have to, you see the title and how are you not going to read it? So she has this article called Bodhisattvas Have More Fun. And um, she says some lovely things about the Bodhisattva attitude. She says, you're not frozen in an attitude about the way things are. You're in motion, not fixated on a special agenda, but open and creative and seeing freshly looking for imaginative ways to approach the suffering of the world, appreciating the preciousness of our lives. She says, you don't have to agonize. And this is what I was bringing up before about that overwhelm. You don't have to agonize about how can I serve? How can I make a difference? Instead, she says, we can pick up whatever tool is at hand. Oh, it's a cup. Oh, it's a hammer. And we exercise imagination. Imagination is needed to recognize that we're part of the problem. And also imagination is required to see how we're part of the solution. To imagine things generously and not get stuck in our old, own small story that usually involves right and wrong, at least my small stories do, you know, the good guys and the bad guys. So our grandmother said, I don't know what to do with myself after those trials. And so about a year later, I started coming down here, just taking action. Now, I want to bring in this quote from Greta Thunberg. What she says about that is, once we start to act, hope is everywhere. Once we start to act, hope is everywhere. So instead of looking for hope, Look for action. Then and only then, hope will come. I, I really uh, see the energy that I put out there looking for hope, looking for the right action. So this quote, once we start to act, hope is everywhere. And I think this really, uh, we can really see this in our story of the stonecatcher as well. So I hope um, that we can all over and over again, take this story to heart, especially attending closely to each step it took for the woman in our story. What will it take for us? What will it take for us to keep alive our vow, to you know, keep showing up, keep standing up, um, transform our anger and hopelessness, and give the gift of fearlessness. And then, you know, inquiring where do we stop and turn away so that we can see that? And what hungry spirits are we not willing to invite in? So I'm hoping we'll have some time for conversation. I forgot to ask Mark and I can't remember. I think that this is your, um, your usual tradition, but I'm gonna end with a, a quote. Um, I've just been studying Shantideva again this spring in our practice period. So I wanna end with, with his great Bodhisattva vow. He says, 
May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the path, a boat, a raft, a bridge for those who wish to cross the flood. May I be a lamp in the darkness, a resting place for the weary, a healing medicine for all who are sick, a vase of plenty, a tree of miracles, and for the boundless multitudes of living beings, may I bring sustenance and awakening, enduring like the earth and sky, until all beings are freed from sorrow and all are awakened. Thank you, Sangha, and I hope we can have some conversation. Beautiful, Nanette. Beautiful. And I apologize for not wishing you and every mother here and every grandmother here happy Mother's Day. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. I truly apologize. That was just beautiful. So, um, any, yes, you're right, Nanette, we do. We have a little time for some questions and answers or thoughts. And uh, Brian wants to start out. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Mark. Uh, thank you again, Annette, and I, I'm honored that I got a, a chance to talk with you a little bit in the breakout session before we started. One metaphor that came to mind as you were describing this grandmother is a metaphor I came across in my reading years ago, uh, describing the Buddha as the Himalayan mountain in the midst of the winter storm and the winter winds just blowing around him as he sat in meditation. Solid, grounded, immovable. And I thought of this grandmother the same way. She was that steady, calm presence in the midst of all the emotion and the chaos in the courtroom. So, and I think in so many ways as the Bodhisattva, we are that calm, anchored, grounded presence. And that story just captures that so beautifully and powerfully. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. I love that imagery. I haven't heard it before and I agree it's just it captures that spirit it, it reminded me of a um in a talk recently Kesh, Kathy Fisher was talking about Robaishin grandmother's mind and she she said you know it's like our lap the the image of the grandmother's lap where there's infinite room for everything Everything, you know, nothing needs to, it's just soft enough and tender enough that there's room for everything and there's room for temper tantrums and there's room for anger and there's room for tears. And it's just, you know, all there held in the grandmother's lap. Thank you, Brian. Well, I'll say something, uh, Nanette, about uh, something I thought about. I just have to find my note here. Um, I was thinking about spiritual friendship as you were talking, and I was thinking about um, the fact that anyone, we always think that, a, I, I, I know, I won't say we, I always thought that a spiritual friend had to be someone like my teacher or my wife, you know, and they are, of course, 
But in fact, anybody can be a spiritual friend. We just have to be open-hearted to it. And I, I thought of the wonderful quote from the Buddha. I guess, I think it was Ananda who said to him, well, um, isn't, he said, I think, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think he said, isn't um, friendship the half of life? And the Buddha said, no, Ananda, it's the, it's the all of life. It's the fullness of life, friendship. And I thought as I was listening to you that that woman was an instant friend of Brian and an instant friend to everyone who she saw, even if they didn't talk to her, just her presence there was just great spiritual friendship. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dandy. And, and the imagery of her welcoming him to come sit um, speaks so loudly to the whole point that here's this, this calming force who said, come, come sit with me. And, and isn't that an interesting imagery that runs throughout almost all spiritual teachings of all traditions? Come sit with me. The words to me that fit the most, and, and these are words from my chaplaincy training, uh, are coming alongside, you know, all those, it, it can be silence. It's not, no, you know, it's not telling others what to do. It's just that profound coming alongside others in their suffering. It's so beautiful. We have a, I'm sorry, go on, please. Um, I don't know if we want to uh, or have time to open this up, but, um, you know, the ongoing exploration of uh, when, where we turn away, you know, it's so beautiful and open-hearted to be inspired. And at the same time, it's so important to know that, you know, we care so much to, to do good and not cause harm. And uh, I actually started the chaplaincy program after caring for my mom and not to disparage my care, you know, in her uh, last years, but I, I could feel that the times that I turned away. And so I really felt like I wanted to really learn to be more and more steady in the face of suffering. And I think that that's um, what we want to do. And to do that, you know, I have to see what's when I do turn away, when I can't, you know, show up so that I can work with that. And I wonder if anyone had. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the work part. <laughs> and I wonder if anyone had any questions or reflections about that. Well, I, I'm very grateful for your talk today. And um, 
one of the, I was reflecting on turning away. And one of the things I know I, I have to work with is when I know I've turned away, turning toward what I turned away from within myself. Beautiful. And it's a very helpful practice. Yeah. Thank you for the reminder. Oh, thank you. Perfect. Yeah. Having room on our grandmother's lap for our fear and our failures and our turning away and all of that. Yeah, thank you so much. I go, yes, Ta Tanya. Um, yeah, I wanted to say that one thing that I am strongly struggling with a lot is um, the fact that I get very easily overwhelmed and it is very hard for me to drop the stones on the ground and not put them in the backpack. So I am preemptively turning away by sometimes not facing things where I could perhaps help, not, um, I mean, I was just complaining to Roshi like a, at, at a bonfire social that I cannot read news at all because, I, and I hear, I only know about the news from what I hear from people in passing, or I see the front page of the newspaper and I just stay with that, like that's enough, because I can fall apart much too easily. And so I will really appreciate if you can tell me anything about that. I mean, I know I have to work on my resilience and hopefully that's going to come one day, but Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for your question. I think the first thing I would say is that when I hear you talking about the news and you know titrating, that's skillful means, period. I, I think we need to not, uh, sometimes there's a sense of almost or wallowing in the pain or you know, just it's like this fire hose that we can't even see. So there's some, one of the things that I do is, you know, not, not shut everything out, stay well informed, but also stay attuned to when it's just too much. And also, and mainly, and this is, you know, um, like our beautiful quote from Greta, you know, like serve the person, the being in front of you, come alongside the being in front of you. And that's so helpful to me because sometimes I question my whole everything. Like, why am I even at Upaya? I should be at the border. I should be here. I should be there. I should be, you know, um, and we, we have to do what's in front of us not in a hiding from everything way, but slow, you know, taking what we can and meeting the suffering that's right in front of us and not, you know, I think it's actually quite wise to close the newspaper when we need to, because there's all this beauty in the world and it's not in the newspaper for the most part. And that's, you know, that's a shame. What if there were a story in the newspaper on the front page every day about a woman like this grandmother? 
that's a newspaper I would read cover to cover, <laughs> you know what I mean? So the balance I think is, is important. Really, your question is so central. It's something that I think we're all really finding our way with. Thank you. weeks ago I gave a talk <clears throat> to this group about my efforts to not turn away and I um, talked about the homeless people that I used to turn my head and then slowly I realized that turning my head was not doing me any good let alone them I'm not going to go into the whole thing obviously um, but I think not turning away is a very hard practice, but a very important one. I think part of our confusion is the we don't want to see it unless we can solve it. You know what I mean? And we can't. So that's why coming alongside, I mean, the woman in the courthouse, she wasn't fixing our justice system, right? She wasn't, uh, and there are other people working, you know, Brian Stevenson, he's working in a different way. She was just coming alongside and not turning away, but knowing that, you know, it's really hard knowing that we can't fix it. Coming back to our mothering, you know, I wanna fix the lives of all my children and grandchildren exactly to have them have the shape I think they should have. And I realized at some point, wow, that would be like the whole world according to Monchen would not be a, a, a perfect, beautiful world in fact. Yeah, so just letting things be, but <laughs> not turning away is a great practice for us, right? <laughs> Brian. Yeah, I remember a story about Mother Teresa when someone asked her why she bothered working with all these people in poverty because she was not going to solve the problem of poverty. And she says, that's not the problem I'm solving. That's a problem for the politicians to solve. She says, I'm here to make sure that today this person doesn't go hungry or this person doesn't die alone or this person feels seen. Those are the problems I'm here to solve. And that's exactly what you spoke to. So that's a very powerful reminder. And I am taking that one to heart. So thank you again for that. Thank you. Bumunshin, thank you again so much today and always. So welcome. Thank you everyone for showing up. Have a wonderful day, everybody. Happy Mother's Day. Thank you. Thank you for a great talk and a great morning. You're welcome. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Say hi to Chuck. I will. He's in the gardens at Upaya pruning and watering right now. Wonderful. <laughs> Bye. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.